Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How'd they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. Okay, so now Ashurbanipal is building his library. He has sort of sorted out all the situations. The gods took care of the Cimmerians on Assyrian (laughs) soil. Uh, The Great Revolution is over. Elam has been beaten to a pulp. Yeah. And we'll see what happens next. But before we do that, I would like to ask all of you to give us reviews on iTunes. If you're listening to this on an Apple device, please review us in iTunes. And if you do that from Sweden, I can read it. And if you do it from uh, the States, Bernie can read it. But I actually have a Swedish review in English that I will now read. So the user on iTunes is registered under the name Great History, Great Stories. He or she has given us five stars. And starts the the subject is also Great History, Great Stories. Awesome podcast with a lot of informational value. And to top this off, the guys are cool and funny. <laughs> Would like the episodes to be a bit longer. Thanks for an amazing podcast. And we could do longer episodes. Thank you for the review. Uh, we could do longer episodes, but we do need uh, some more money for that. So please sponsor us at <laughs> patreon.com. Search for Fan of History. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep this up. Yeah, it's, we're having a blast. Yes, let's go back to Ashurbanipal. Yeah, let's. So now... Um, we're gonna we're at six. I'm gonna just put it at 6:44, but it could be earlier too, right? So it's 6:44. The campaign against the Arabs, which is again kind of I'm gonna do like the Elamite campaign because 
there's a whole bunch of cylinders that this is written in. Then in the last one, he sums it all up, and it's back and forth. So, again, I think it's just easier to do the whole campaign against the Arabs. And the chronology, again, is a little uncertain. You know, like I said, it's based on all his writings. So um, it's at least it's two campaigns. But in that Rassam cylinder, he just makes it all one. So I used all of them for this. And, you know, of course, um, you know, other historians and things like that. So... Here's how it goes. The, the earliest account tells about this king, Yauta. He's the son of Hazel. That's a man's name, Hazel, H-A-Z-A-E-L. He's king of the Kedarites. And they had been a tributary of Ezarhaddon, and they revolted. And this, this, I mean, I said 644, but I believe this is, again, around the time of the revolution. So during the revolution, you know, people are trying to pull apart. Yes. And if you remember, too, remember he said his his dastardly brother, you know, got all these people against him. So so this Yauta and another Arabic king called Amuladin, who is almost like a lot, like a lot of Amuladin, they plundered the Amuru region of the empire. And that's what Ashurbanipal calls Syria. So that's like the northern Levant. So they during the revolution, they start plundering that area. I mean... Like, I always thought of the Arabs as just being really far in the south. I guess I always kind of equated it with Saudi Arabia. But if you look at a map of the Middle East or, you know, the Near East at this time, it's kind of like a wide upside-down U, and that inside is desert, and that's where the Arabs lived. But there's obviously a lot of people in there, you know, and oases, and they, you know, knew how to live in the desert. So to the west, it does sort of butt up against Syria there. So that's the area where they were, you know, where they were fighting. It's also areas that the Assyrians have never been very interested in, nor any good at actually traveling in the desert. So the the Arabs have been involved in Assyrian politics for a long time. And of course, they they became a tributary of Esarhaddon because he was actually in the area. Yes. But uh, the Arabs also have a great strategical advantage in that they get to hide in the desert if they don't want to show up. For battle. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's that's how that was the Islamic, rev, um, you know, invasions. They just, you know, melted back into the deserts. Yes. And so, so the Assyrian army they they had help though from with their king of Moab. They defeated these rebels, these Arabs. So wow, that was the king of disaster. Moab. Mm-hmm. Moab is still around. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a vassal state. Yes. Moab is a that's... good vassal state. That's right to the east of Judah. Correct. So that he was captured, the Arab king was captured, and he was sent. So it was Amaladin, he was captured. But Yauta, he escaped. So here's what Ashurbanipal says. I sent troops of mine who were stationed on the border of his land against them. They struck down with the sword the people of the land of the Arabs and set fire to their pavilions and tents, their abodes, and thus consigned them to the god Gira. Who is Gira? He's like this, the death god. The death god of the desert. Yeah. There's a but look at the, the Assyrian plunder of the Arabs. It's like, sorry, we can burn down some tents and pavilions. Yeah. yeah. There isn't much else to burn out. Yeah. It, it reminds you of the Bible too, right? Though, like when they were they lived in their tents when they were coming out of Egypt. Exactly. Yeah, how they lived in tents. So, I mean, they were probably big tents, but they, I love this part. They carried off without, here's what he says, they carried off without number, oxen, sheep, and goats, donkeys, camels, and people. They filled them with the whole extent of the land. 
in its entirety, to all its borders. I apportioned camels like sheep and goats and divided them among the people of Assyria so that within my country they could purchase a camel for one shekel or even a half shekel of silver at the market gate, the female tavern keeper for a serving, the beer brewer for a jug of beer, and the gardener for his bag of vegetables were regularly receiving camels and slaves as wages. <laughs> what? That's because there's so many camels, right? They were like, oh, uh, I'll take a beer. Uh, it'll be a shackle. Uh, how about a camel? <laughs> so the Assyrian soldiers are returning to go to the inn for a jug of beer and a meal and pay with two camels. Yeah, exactly. Not even the soldiers. Like everybody had so many camels. Did you ever see that episode on Monty Python where, um, with, uh, he, he, with the bloody lupins? Yes. Right? It was like, oh, no more bloody lupins. <laughs> camels, camels, I'm sick of camels. <laughs> but what happened to uh, Yota? So, in his place, and another Arabian warlord, his name was Abiyate. He came to Nineveh, and he was granted the kingship of the Kedarites. So, Yauta was still on the run. Right? And all it cost him was a payment of gold, eye stones, um, some other kind of stones, camels, and prime quality donkeys. Did they really want more camels? I know, right? Well, yeah. I guess like a regular, uh, you know, a regular stipend of camels and prime quality donkeys. I mean, this was the, definitely the invention of money. Coming would have come in handy to the Assyrians at this point. Yes, we still maybe that's what knocked them down. Oh my God! I just thought of that. There were camels everywhere because they didn't have coins. Exactly. That's not a good way to run an economy. <laughs> and a coin is a lot more tidy than a camel. If you think you'd be like people are saying, you know, um, cash is, is inconvenient, let's get Bitcoin. Imagine a camel. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. They also, uh, Abiyate also had to provide uh, coal, the eye makeup. Yes. For the Assyrians, because we know the Assyrians were into eye makeup. And that's where all that stuff came from. That I, I went down a tangent when I was doing the research looking at this, and those eye stones, they look, they're really cool. They look like, you know, the religious type of stones and things like that. I think that this wasn't very expensive for Abiyat. Like, he had a ton of camels. <laughs> he had a lot of makeup. <laughs> he had eye stones lying yeah. around. So. This was a cheap tribute. The gold hurt him more, I guess. Yeah. And he gets to be king, and he doesn't have his tent burned on. Oh, good, good uh, power play by Abiyata. Yeah. So that's part one. Now the next version of this narrative adds that Ashurbanipal defeated Adiya, and she's a queen of the Arabs, and that Yauta fled to another chieftain named Natnu of the Nabayate, who refused him and remained loyal to Ashurbanipal. So not, not, Natnu... <laughs> Not you, not me, not new. Not new. He stayed loyal. And then these these accounts connect Yauta's rebellion to Shamashuma Ukan, and they place at the same time, suggest that the Western raids by Arabs were just like I say before, prompted by the instability by the by the civil war. That makes sense. Yeah. So after that the first conflict here, um, Ashurbanipal had another campaign against the Arabs. According to this account, the Assyrian army was just marching around from Sirius to Damascus. They're all over the place. And they defeated some other uh, Arab chieftains and kings. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware weather ready teak and quick dry foam cushions for memorial day get 15 off your burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast and up to 25 off outdoor That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's the second account. And then the, the latest account and the longest, and it's all mishmashed into one narrative. And this is the one that comes from the Rassen Cylinder. And it's written sometime between 644 and 636. It's, it's pretty much the same. They have some different names thrown in, so it makes it confusing. Basically, what happened is the Arabs, they took advantage of the rebellion. They raided the Levant in Syria. And then, with the help of some vassals like the king of Moab, they're defeated. Had all kind of nasty things done to them, flaying, impaling, mass deportations. The leaders are taken to Nineveh, all that stuff. He says he does this to a few people. To reveal the grandeur of Asher and the great gods, my lords, I laid upon him a heavy penalty. I put him in a kennel with jackals and dogs. I tied him up and made him guard the gate in Nineveh, called the entrance of the thronging nations. So he made this Arab leader a uh, guard dog? Yeah, because he actually begged for his life. So he gave. He said, oh, okay, I took, I took mercy on him. I made him, tied him up like a dog. <laughs> Ashurbanipal's mercy. Yeah. I remember these guys had to help him remodel his apartment too. And pull his cart when mm -hmm. he was going to the temple. That's right. Yeah, so basically, he says that um, he says in this thing that they suffered all the curses for not abiding by the treaty. So remember, the, like the Ezrahadan treaty? So like he says they had all these curses, like I guess their bones were ground into bread and donkey urine and whatnot. Oh, no. Yeah, all the ter terrible things. Here's the thing, though. Okay, so there's reliefs about this. And so it shows that there's pretty much there was two campaigns, just like uh, the earlier when they showed two, not the one where you mix, mix them all together. And there's some cool, interesting things on there, though, I think anyway. 
So you'll see the Arabs, they're riding in camels on two-man teams. So there's two guys on, on a camel. One looks like he has a short spear, or it kind of looks like a really big arrow. Or he maybe he's using it to like control the camel, but it does look like it has a point on it. Um, so it's bigger than an arrow, but not as long, quite as long as a spear as you would think. But the Assyrians, their cavalry is single riders. Some of them are spears, and some of them are horse archers. And they're definitely Assyrians, because you can see they have the conical helmets. And then you also see chariots, and they and the you know and the reliefs they look like they're effective at defeating the troops, the enemies, I should say. And we also see some uh, auxiliary troops on the Assyrian side. But here's the wow. nasty thing. There's one nasty thing. Oh, I'm sorry. We, maybe we should discuss that a little. Well, th that's the development of the Assyrian cavalry. That's interesting. Yeah. Yes. Because they only used to be bowmen on on horses. Right. I thought that was interesting. And I wonder how you use a spear from uh, from a horse without stirrups. I mean, yeah, I guess you would have to... Uh, you won't have much... I mean, you probably squeeze your legs tight. Yeah, and they, they probably are mostly horse archers. Yeah. Could be for mopping up people and things like that. And I also... Why are there two people on the camel? Yeah, they were the two people. Well, one has the arrows and one has like the... You know, has like a spear. Interesting. Yeah, I'll post the pictures. I'll post the pictures on the, on the, on the link so you see them. I, I, I wish we could go and see them. I want to go see them in real life someday. That's where, uh, are they in the British Museum yeah. as well? Or? Yeah. Oh. Once this COVID is okay, over, we're, we're going to have a trip. The great uh, Ashurbanipal exhibition that I missed. Yeah, you missed it. I was in London right before it and right after it. I mean, for like 10 months. where do they have the stuff in the basement or something? Maybe they'll let us in. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't uh, bet any money on that. No. They have enormous basements in the British Museum to keep right. all their stolen stuff. Could probably have magic stuff in there too, like Raiders of the Lost Ark stuff. But anyway, here's another thing though on the reliefs. This, this is a little bit nasty. So we're used to seeing the Syrian relief showing all kinds of violence, right, and the populations and being deported. But we don't usually see violence against women. But the relief found the reliefs found in room L of Ashurbanipal's North Palace concerning these Arab campaigns, we could clearly see that the troops are killing Arab women. And I read a paper, his name is Peter Dabowski. He's an Assyriologist. Uh, he believes that the scene depicts Assyrian soldiers ripping open a pregnant woman. It definitely looks like that. Like they're ripping, they're this brutal. They're lighting the tents on fire. They're killing the women. I mean, you don't you don't normally see that kind of thing. So, I have so many questions about this campaign because the Arabs are obviously invading the Levant, mm -hmm. but Ashurbanipal is destroying their camps. It seems like that's. Or, it seems to be a migration into the Levant, pretty much. If they have brought their women and their camps, yeah, what's going on? What are they doing? And it's very different from what the Arabs have been doing earlier, because they have just been raiding or getting involved in war, helping the Chaldeans. They've done that before. But now they seem to be invading the Levant. So it, it seems to be like a, a huge move on the Arabs. Yeah, that's a good point, and that could be why you know King of Moab was more than happy to get involved because they'd be on his border. Judah. 
Yeah, Judah doesn't seem to have have been involved in any way, you know, directly militarily. Although they probably, you know, their troops could have been involved. So they went to the to the right of the on the Dead Sea and went through Moab into northern in the northern area. Yeah, I mean, maybe they moved. Maybe they they moved with their camp followers. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was the whole. You know the whole civilization, so so to speak, the whole you know moving with them. But they were nomads, so I imagine they all kind of moved around together too, and they had Probably. little tents. So it's like everything is happening in the six forties. So much violence happening in the six forties. I said they were gonna have a lot of episodes in the six forties, right? If Shamashuma Ukin had just stayed put, remained the king of Babylon, and then none of this would have happened. Probably not. Then what would we have to talk about, right? Oh, we would go on to the 630s. I guess. Still I mean, in the 640s. <laughs> Maybe the 630s. Are like, well, I, I think the 630s don't have as quite as much. Not in the Syria maybe, anyway. Or That's maybe the we, sources will get worse. That too. A lot of, yeah, for sure. And they, they got somebody's got to be tired of fighting. Let's do some sports. Yes. 644 BC Olympics. We have one documented champion. Stomas of Athens was the victor in the stadium. What happened here? That's all Did I they know. lost track of the victors? Yep. The stadium was the most important one, though, so... Yes. And maybe this uh, this Olympics wasn't documented except in Athens. Then That's what I'm coming to. The, it always seems like we only know the victors of the, you know, whatever one we have the documentation of. Like they yeah, didn't Athens have uh, usually do, uh, do not perform very well in the Olympics. Who's that? So this must have been huge. Athens does oh, yeah, do very right. well in the Olympics. So That's good true. work, Stomas. Yeah, good old Stomas. It's like Thomas with an S in front of it. Stomas. Stomas. That's a lot easier to pronounce than some of these other names. So that's all I got in there for the Olympics. Okay, no more sports. Let's go back to violence and death. Yes, but we have death. Another, another one of my friends from the first podcast that I did in the 680s, Manasseh of Judah. He dies. He has been around for a long time. Yes, um, 50 some years. He was he was about 65 or 66 when he died, and he reigned for 55 years, and that is the longest reign for any Israelite or Judah Judite king. He was known as Wicked Wicked Manasseh. Whenever you look up and do research on this, you'll find a lot of they call him Wicked Wicked Manasseh because because of him, Jerusalem was sacked, the temple was destroyed, and the Judaites were taken away to Babylon. 57 years from now. That happened a lot later. Yeah, 57 years from now, but it was still his fault. Okay. You didn't know that? Oh, yeah. He was an ungodly king. Well, what was that? Because he was an ungodly king. Correct. He was an ungodly king. He didn't actually piss off the Babylonians. He pissed off Yahweh. I think somebody else pissed off the Babylonians. Yeah. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves. That would have been his, I believe that's one of his, uh, either his nephew or one of his great-grandsons, Zedekiah. He's definitely a bonehead. We'll we'll get into him 57 years from now. Okay, that's a lot of episodes. Yeah. Um, Important, that, you know, that'll be an important episode for sure for world history. So, yeah, so Manasseh dies, wicked, wicked Manasseh dies. He was about 65, 66 when he died. That's pretty pretty old for anybody in those days. According to the Bible, he was buried in the Garden of Oza. 
which is a garden of his own house and not in the city of David among his ancestors. He was succeeded by his son Ammon, who, who was 22 years old at the time. That name sounds very Egyptian. Amon. Doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's a good but, point. Uh, okay, Manasseh did quite well. He stayed alive for a long time. He survived through a lot of things. He sure did. And he also managed to avoid the Arab invasion somehow. Yep. Judah did very well under Manasseh. I know we did cover him a little more in that one episode. Their, their, their olive oil trade with the Assyrians was great. They, they did very good being part of the Assyrian Empire. If you didn't, if you were a good vassal and did your things, you know, for the Assyrians, it could be good for business because the Assyrians, as you always say, were traders. Yes, he seems to be able to play the Assyrian vassal role extremely well. We know being a vassal of Assyria is no uh, picnic, but he did it. Yeah. Now, wait, and I forget now, Did when did um, one of the Philistine cities was crushed around? Was it Ashurbanipal or Ezerhaddon that smashed up that city? So I think several of them. Yeah. Several times. And so, the and, and there, you know, there was some... If you were, you know, there was some battles going on in Phoenicia. So, you know, them stand keeping their nose clean. Olive trees grow for, you know, a long time. So you get a lot of trees going. And olive oil was a huge commodity in the in the ancient days. Huge, you know. So they, they were very prosperous under Manasseh. But he was wicked, wicked. The thing about him, wicked, wicked, is they say he brought, you know, into the actual the temple that he brought other gods in and Asherah and all these things. I you know. I just feel like it's like having a Christmas tree. You know, like, just go with the flow. I think he did that. Uh, that was probably well perceived by the Assyrians, so maybe that's why he did it. Right, and he had the northern kingdom. Don't forget, the Samaria was, they were, he had the, the people from there in living in, in his kingdom, from the northern kingdom, so they had different religious practices, even though they were Yahweh worshippers. They also worshipped other gods, and they worshipped Yahweh in a different way. Yahweh was like a bull, you know, and then they had their Asherah, which when you talk about the posts, were really the Asherahs, which is Yahweh's wife. So, you know, they just said he did bad, which was in the eyes of the Lord. But they, you know, they said that later. But people, uh, you know, I'm sure he had his enemies at the time as well. He definitely did. But he lived for, he was king for 55 years. That must give him high marks. Except in the Bible. <laughs> Except in the Bible. I know, so if you think about it, he should be Manasseh the Great. It was like the golden age. You have 55 years of peace. and He made Judah, you know, Judah was a backwater until the northern kingdom collapsed, and then Sennacherib destroyed all the other cities, and Jerusalem became a you know, major city. And I'm sure Ashurbanipal would not have been above doing what the Babylonians will do in 57 years. No, he would have no problem doing if Manasseh had acted like Zedekiah. Oh, they had no problem. <laughs> I see the word Urartu in the yes. script. It says there was a campaign in 643, but I don't think there is. Pretty much, I think that Urartu was getting along very well, actually, with Ashurbanipal at this period. That's what I, from my research, I found. They are busy fighting the Sumerians. Yes. I don't think they are having any problems with each other. They're fighting the Cimmerians, and Ashurbanipal is not bothering them. Well, it's perfect to have a roar in the mountains to the north of you. Yes. They got a little peace. You know you can beat a roar if you need to, but uh, the Cimmerians are a whole other thing. Exactly. 
<laughs> so for once, one area, and they're not going to beat up on the Meads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we hear very little about the Meads in this no, decade. No, but they'll be moving into that where where Elam, right? Yes. This is the start of that. That got that ball rolling. Yes, and it seems that the Meads are quite a lot more powerful than the Persians at this point. Yeah, yes. And we're going to find out all about that. So, what do you think? Move on to China? Yes. All right, so now 643, we're back to China. Another one of my originals dies. Duke Wan of Qi in China. Okay, now I said key and you said chi. It probably is key. <laughs> That's why I let you talk to Chinese. It's okay. Q-I, key. Yeah, Q-I. Yeah, because chi, see, there is a chi, right? Is it? <laughs> there, no, there's <laughs> another. I, yeah, it's so, I apologize. So I really, there's a there's a good podcast, History of China, and I and I use it for part of this, but he covers a bigger area, you know, he covers bigger times, like this part is only a small part of one podcast, so... If you're really into Chinese history, to you know, big picture, it's the history yes. of China. It's a very good podcast. So if we remember Duke Wan. He was the ruler of the state of Qi from 685 to 643. So that's nearly 40 years, and he was the first hegemon. So this helped me from that uh, history of China podcast. A hegemon isn't a person per se, but it's the state. So technically, Duke Huan made the state of Qi the first hegemon. But then when he died, they kind of weren't the hegemon anymore. So it's sort of it's a lot of times the hegemon gets personalized as a person, but technically it's the state. And um, this so tech so this is again during the spring and autumn period, uh, and then his death actually marks the end of the first pa- first phase of that called the age of regional cultures, and the beginning of the second phase, which is the age of encroachments. Well, that sounds like an interesting age. Yeah, and we're right in it. The 640s is the turning point of all history of the world. <laughs> oh, it sure is. The 600s is anyway. The 600s BC, you would not believe how many things have happened in this century that changed. If things didn't go certain ways, the whole world would be different. That is true for the the 6th century as well. Yeah, oh, for Five sure. Oh. For sure. So anyway... So if you remember, um, the, he, he was defeated in the Battle of Lulin in 645, and Guanzong, my other friend, he died in 645, and he was his most important advisor. So Duke Huan started to grow ill, and he was increasingly ignored by the leaders of the other states, all those battling, and then his authority even over his own state of Qi declined, and there's various political factions, they began to vie for power. Now, this is a crazy story right so there was some high officials as well as six of the duke's sons i'm not going to name them jiao vukui pan shangren yuan and jong yes each of these sons was from a different concubine because duke Wan's three main wives they bore him no sons so he's got at least six concubines and three main wives i don't know he reminds me of somebody else i know <laughs> so as um, as a result of this, they all felt entitled to the throne, right? Of course they did. Sure. I don't know what's wrong with these guys. This is I'm telling you, this is a crazy story. So Juan, he had designated Prince Zhao as his heir, and he even told the Duke of Song 
that um, he made to make sure he would be the heir. I'm sorry, like the Duke of Song just totally threw me off. Like, what a name, the Duke of Song. <laughs> Sounds like the guy with an electric guitar. Right? Oh, boy. So, I, mean, I think he should have probably wrote a treaty with, like, nasty curses of donkey urine and stuff. And anyway, but anyway, the five sons, they still plotted for power. And the Duke had to deal with four other officials, being that his main, that Guanzong was dead. There was, I love these names, Tang Wu, he's the court sorcerer, Yi Ya, the chief cook, Shu Diao, chief of the eunuchs, and Ganzi Kaifeng, he's a leading courtier. So, the chief cook <laughs> is trying to take power in King. Right. <sighs> Not a cruel. Okay, so we have four powerful officials. Four powerful officials. And right before Guanzong died, he, on his deathbed, he told his, you know, his the duke that he should send them into exile. The four, these four guys, and so the duke did this for like three years. He had them away, but he found himself missing their talents at the court. I mean, I guess he liked he needed the cook and the sorcerer. Now imagine Duke Juan there is in in his aging days. He doesn't have any spells. He has lousy food. <laughs> <laughs> the eunuchs are just out of control. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah the, the courtiership is uh, oh going downwards. You're the best. The eunuchs are Give out of control. Back. <laughs> Come back. I need them. Well, I'll I need tell you what. just cooking. <laughs> He's eating like crappy broth and the eunuchs are going wild. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I'll tell you what. You should have... If that was him, for what happens to him, he should have eaten dirt. He should have eaten, I shouldn't say dirt, but he should have eaten whatever crappy food they were making. Because these guys, they conspired against him. And they locked him in his room for months. They issued all the commands in his name. But So you know what they were up to while they had him locked up in his room? You get ready for this one. Okay. So, okay. so one of his wives, they're no longer accepting the excuses from these guys snuck into the duke's compound so yeah they didn't even have just a bedroom they had his own compound right they snuck into the compound and then found wriggling from the door frame of his bedroom a bunch of grave worms and like maggots and stuff because they starved him to death in his room what a downfall for duke one what a let's have another moment for him that's not a way for him to go I mean, he faked his he, death. He brought his cook back. Yeah. To get some food, and he didn't get any food from the cook. The irony. This is an outrage. It is an outrage. It is. It is the irony, the outrageous irony of it all. And how about Asher Banapal? He's like thinking, why did I think of that one? <laughs> he never starved anyone to death like a purpose. I mean, I guess by like he starved everybody to death in Babylon, but anyway. So about late 643, he died, or his, his rotting corpse was found around then. And then the capital descended into violence. And then the six sons and different officials, they all took up arms against each other to seize the throne. So the state was severely weakened. It lost its status as the hegemon. And guess who became king? Zhao, the one who was supposed to be king all along anyway. Well, he did have support from the Duke of Song. <laughs> he did have report. I shouldn't say he became king. He became duke. Yes. Yes. And the Duke of Song was his help. Was his? That was it. It's like the Duke of Earl, the Duke of Song. 
But yeah, he never he tried to regain the hegemony, but he failed. And the next uh, hegemon then was the Duke Wen of Jin. He became the next hegemon. Interesting. Very interesting. So uh, does anyone else die? Uh, yeah. Guess who dies now? King Amon of Judah. <coughs> well, but he was like 22 years old when he mm. became king. Yep. Five minutes ago. Well, he was wicked apparently, like his father. There's not much. So here's this two chronicles says. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Manasseh his father. And Ammon sacrificed unto all the graven images which Manasseh his father had made and served them. So after reigning two years, he was assassinated by his officials or, or some servants. They conspired against him. And he was succeeded by his son Josiah, who was only eight years old at the time. There is something they don't tell us about this story. I think so. You know, Gary and I, we did our episode on Deuteronomy, and we'll be talking more about Josiah, but I think this is the power play going on. Again, like you said, this is a big turning point in history. This is the power point of the, of the monotheists um, coming to power. You know, so they murdered. Uh, they hated Manasseh, but he was probably too powerful. You know, he's king for so long. And then his son, they murdered. I mean, it's not really sure what their what their plan was because the Bible just says um, his murderers became unpopular with the people of the land, and then they were ultimately killed. And these people of the land proclaimed Josiah as his successor. So oh, the um, Judah has a track record of uh, allowing children to be kings. So yeah, yeah, because Manasseh was king. He was co-regent, co-king with his father, but he was either two or twelve, depending on how they. I think he was 12, but it could, it could be, it could have been two. So yeah, it's not clear what they had in mind. But and some scholars think that he was assassinated because they liked the way that the heavy, they disliked the heavy influence that Assyria had upon him. And in my opinion, these people were dummies, and Ammon was smart. Well, in 641, it's probably good to have a king that uh, is not hated by the Assyrians. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be. And so just like. Do anything you can to keep the Syrians away. Yeah. The people of the land has been said they may be like the, the aristocratic type people, the wealthier people, the landowners. And sure, they were they were doing well. So why would they want to? Like, let's not rock the boat. We want to have an army come through and kill everybody again? So they were pretty much the capitalists selling oil to uh, the Assyrians. I think so. They were like, yeah. don't. Don't break this nice thing we have. Let's I make so. an eight-year-old king. Yeah, so they put him on, but then then we'll see because things change. And like I said, we talked about that in Deut- Deuteronomy episode, and we'll get into it more. Josiah, then the faction of the Yahwehists, the monotheists. I shouldn't really say monotheists as much as the word they'll use is monolatrous. Monolatry meaning that they believe there's other gods, but you're only to worship one, being Yahweh. So it doesn't mean that they don't exist. It just means you're only to worship Yahweh. Yahweh's a jealous God. And I just say that's the, you know not that's what they say in the Bible. Yeah, you know Yahweh says I am a jealous God. Good to be self-aware of your jealousy. Yeah. I mean you can't be jealous if there's nobody to be jealous of. <laughs> if you're the only God, you don't need to be jealous. So that's what happened in Judah. All right. So I think that will end another episode of the 640s. We're still not done. 
Okay, let's do another one. Yeah, all right, we'll do another one. We'll end this one, and we'll get on the line. This next one should be the last one. We're going to wrap up the 640s. All right, well, don't forget to give us those iTunes reviews. And like our Facebook page. Yes, please. All right, well, we'll be back with the 640s, the final edition. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.